0: Part 1. Comparative Analysis, Question 1. Who influenced your learning about taxation? Answer 1. Larkin Rose at first, Family Guardian slash SEDM, then later on Pete Henriksen, Boston Tea Party, The Informer, Frank Cowlick, IRS Humbug, Pat Patton, and even some pretty much normie tax authors such as Daniel Pilla, Frederick W. Daly, stand up to the IRS. Most people may not know who Pat Patton is. He wrote the book, IRS, Liars, Thieves, Thugs, Cowards and Hypocrites. 2. I have managed to get some hard-to-find books along the way. Pat Patton really hammers home the point that no tax liability exists until an assessment is made, and that assessment must be procedurally proper and cannot be arbitrary. I have been researching the standard for arbitrary assessments established by the courts to see if we can force the IRS to abate a tax and or release a lien, etc., when they refuse to do so. Three. Another good author is Daniel Pilla. He is pretty much normie in his viewpoint, but I learned a lot from his books on how the IRS works. Also, if you read between the lines on some of the things he writes... I think he understands that a third party's gross income reporting is mostly a scam. He actually suggests in one of his books that if you disagree with a third party information return, you can dispute that info on your return, and the IRS would then have a duty to investigate that information return to verify it is correct. He does not go into any details on that. He just mentions it in passing. But he does say, if the information truly is false... It will be impossible for the IRS to verify that information so as to provide a valid signed summary of assessment. 4. I think Daniel Pilla is a better writer than most of the authors of the tax books I have read. He helps dial down the fear by saying things like, You are not going to be dragged off to a dungeon in the middle of the night for making the IRS mad. That is something many people need to hear. He also says, that you are not going to jail unless you deliberately set out to cheat the IRS. This is something I really emphasize. What is in your heart really matters. My clients learn enough to genuinely have confidence in what we are doing. Unless you really know and believe in it, it will cause you sleepless nights. No amount of money saved on taxes is worth giving up your peace of mind. Question 2. How did you arrive at the solutions you advocate today? Answer 2. 1. Studying approaches that don't work, which is all of them when it comes down to it, especially examining Pete Henriksen's court battles and his wife's, and realizing that there's actually a hidden contractual element that creates the liability, which is the missing piece and the reason a lot of the faulty, untaxing approaches end up in a losing battle. 2. I've seen Aaron Russo's movie Freedom to Fascism, where they show how Erwin Schiff was on trial and started to argue the Constitution, and the judge on the record said repeatedly, Irrelevant. While that sounded shocking, I wanted to see if I could find a way that the judge was not just being arbitrary, but had a valid legal reason for saying that. Many tax researchers seem to get off track by settling for easy answers like, The judge is just ignoring the law. 3. It makes more sense to me that the judge would not say something like that unless he knew that the applicable law was on his side. So I began to see that this somewhat fit the model of an invisible contract as described by George Messier in his book of the same name. Once I figured that out, I could see why Pete's approach does not work, and it was easier to pick apart every other method and see why they don't work either when it comes down to it. And by that I mean any method where you are essentially hoping the IRS does not come after you. Well, what if they do? Most methods out there have no answer. Question 3. I'm looking forward to your picking apart some of the other methods, but Pete has shown on his site many people's refund checks as proof of success for those who have followed his method. Why or when did you conclude that this approach does not work? Answer 3. When I experienced its failure myself, and also when Pete went to prison for filing false returns, I even emailed him back and forth for a while a few years back, trying to help him get his sentence vacated, and he was very interested. But eventually he reverted back to his I'm right and everyone else is wrong mentality. His wife went to prison too. If that won't make someone willing to listen, I don't know what will. He is either a compromised shill, honeypot, or he is just his own worst enemy. 2. I learned a lot from him, but I strongly advise against following his repeatedly debunked filing method, which now has its own category in the Internal Revenue Manual for recognizing a possibly frivolous tax return. Question 4. So, you did find some of Pete's research to be valuable. Answer 4. Absolutely. Pete seems to have been influenced by Otto Skinner, who wrote some really good books about the income tax in terms of it being a tax on certain activities, and not on money or income per se. Pete's book, Cracking the Code, is a rather difficult read, but it explains the origins of the U.S. income tax very well, and what it is really supposed to be taxing. Also the limits on congressional taxing power, and especially how to read the law the way the courts do, particularly the statutory definition of terms in the code. 2. Understanding the definitions of just a few key terms can help you unravel the whole scam pretty quickly. 3. The government cut through Pete like a hot knife through butter in court. His returns were found to be false as an objective matter of law. He tried to argue about the definition of wages to the jury, but the court would not allow it because juries decide the facts and the law of the case is to be given to them by the judge. The only question for the jury was whether Pete had willfully filed a false return. They decided yes. So I was interested in how and why the judge decided, as a matter of law, that his returns were objectively false. 4. Pete tried to get his case dismissed at one point by arguing he is not a person as defined for the purposes of the code provision under which he was being prosecuted. The court took six months to come back with a denial of his motion to dismiss. I talked extensively with Pete via email about this. He was convinced, or at least he said he was, that the judge had ruled that everyone is an individual and therefore a person under the general definition in the code at 7701. But what the judge actually said in the ruling is that individuals, such as defendant, are persons within the meaning of the provision of the code he was being prosecuted under. 6671b. Six, six, 5. The judge did not say everyone is an individual or person. He said individuals such as defendant. The case concerned only Pete, which means that there is something about this defendant in particular that makes him an individual and a person as defined. This helped me to see the contractual element at work. Question 5. So, do you want to elaborate more on Pete? and the contractual aspect? Answer 5. 1. Yes, Pete thought that he could argue the definition of wages in court to make it self-evident that he was not liable for any tax. This failed miserably because he failed to understand how his tax liability was actually already established by not having properly refuted the evidence in the administrative record he failed to see how his cracking-the-code returns were deemed to be objectively false on their face as a matter of law. Every income tax case concerns only the particular year, taxpayer, and the IRS. It is treated exactly like a contract dispute. They do set precedents with these cases when unique matters of fact or law come up, but a case is binding on another case only where the facts are substantively the same. 3. And this is where frivolous arguments come in. Every argument you can think of has already been tried and shot down in court. And rightfully so, I might add. 4. When the evidence before a court says that there is a liability you have incurred, there is no argument that will get you out of that liability without your evidence being already in the administrative record that properly rebuts the IRS evidence. Contracts are ancient and have to be binding, or our civilization could not exist so no judge is going to let anyone get out of an income tax liability they have incurred by failing to properly refute it administratively. 5. I want to also mention that CTC returns filed by other PEAT followers show up in the case law, and they are now universally deemed invalid returns, if not frivolous. 6. I myself got hit with frivolous penalties for the ctc styled returns I filed. The IRS also audited one of them, and assessed additional tax based on the W-2 information. 7. Pete claims this never happens or that this type of thing is very rare, yet he bans people from his forums who mention this happened to them, so his followers get the message not to bring it up. 8. 100% of the CTC style returns I filed ended up causing me lots of trouble, and they were accepted initially. I even have refund checks posted on Pete's site. 9. The rate of those refund checks has slowed to a trickle over the years. His approach seems to be most successful for first timers getting a refund up front. The other shoe tends to drop within a year or so. The return gets flagged for an audit because the IRS computer catches the weirdness of a withholding refund while claiming a zero dollar gross income. 10. The flagging by the computer means an examiner looks back over the return. It is at that point that we can see whether a return is going to legally hold up or not. When you first file a return, a return processor is only looking for really obvious problems that make the return not processable. They use an optical scanner to process these returns as fast as possible, and they receive 100 million or so individual returns every year. So getting a refund seems like proof that an approach works, but it really just means you got through the initial processing. The IRS has a minimum of three years from the date of filing to audit, and six years if they find that income was underreported by more than 20%. 11. And if they find the return later to be invalid or fraudulent, there is no time limit for them to audit and increase your tax. Pete found this out in 2017 when the IRS audited him for 2002 and 2003, possibly other years too. That's 13 to 14 years later. He fought this in tax court and lost. His returns were deemed invalid, so it was like he never filed anything because his W-2 forms or whatever were left standing undisputed administratively. No matter how much he argued, no, that's not correct, it did not work because he relied solely on the legal argument about what wages means. This is not even a complete and adequate legal argument, and he did not actually introduce any credible evidence to support his position. Remember that his returns were deemed invalid. So it was like he never filed a case. Cases are decided based on evidence. It is not just an arguing contest. Question 6. And by evidence, you mean his 1040 and 4852 forms he filed? Answer 6. 1. Not in the tax court notice of deficiency case. In the criminal case, yes. 2. The 1040 was the false information that he filed for which he was prosecuted and went before a jury. 3. For tax court, the deficiency is presumed correct once a rational basis is shown by IRS. All they need is a W-2, a 1099, or even bank records. Any available information if they target someone who did not file a return. The idea is Pete should have filed a return to properly show his disagreement in the administrative record. So it was his own fault for not knowing how and why to participate in the process. Question 7. What is flawed and qualifies as frivolous in filing 1040 accompanied by 4852? Answer 7. 1. It is the use of 4852 to zero out wages that render a return frivolous, not merely the use of 4852, which is legitimate form published by the IRS but they did not create it for people to make legal arguments about whether or not they were paid wages. Cracking the code return method attempts to zero out gross income using that form, and typically arguing about the definition of wages at IRC sections 3401 and 3121. But those sections are withholding provisions. They have nothing to do with determining gross income for tax filing purposes. What Pete and others fail to understand is that you are deemed to concede That which you do not properly refute. 2. It is frivolous when the person making the argument has failed to properly refute the legal treatment of his compensation as gross income. He argued the wrong point, and his argument was deemed nonsensical and irrelevant as being merely his opinion. 3. The situation is most often that one's compensation has been legally treated as gross income. The relevant question and argument is whether or not that is correct. Not arguing about how it is not income because it is an equal exchange or whatever. Question 8. You said that Pete relying solely on the legal arguments about what wages means is not an adequate legal argument. Could you please explain why not? Answer 8. Yes. The W-2 filed by the third party establishes facts and conclusions of law that are not refuted by arguing merely, but this wasn't wages. Wages is a term of art found in IRC, section 3401 and 3121, about withholding. Just because an item is not wages does not mean it could not be gross income. 2. If you look at any W-2 form, you can see that the amounts reported are not limited to wages. It says wages, tips, other compensation. The term compensation is short for compensation for services performed within the United States. 3. The employer makes an assumption about their business with the employee, which forms the basis for the employer demanding a social security number and the employee completing a W-4 that assumption being that the employee will be paid compensation for services performed within the United States. So, it is not a sufficient legal argument against tax liability to argue that it is not wages. You need to also dispute the other items, or it may be inferred that you concede to compensation for services performed within the United States which is treated as the gross income defined in IRC section 61. Question 9. You said you got hit with frivolous penalties for the CTC-styled returns you filed, and the IRS also audited one of them and assessed additional taxes based on the W-2 information. Could you elaborate on that? Answer 9. The CTC returns I filed were not deemed valid, so the IRS did an audit as though no return had ever been filed. They can do that, and also impose a frivolous return penalty. The audit happened to me about 11 years ago. At the time, I did not know how to stop it. So I determined to learn how. And I did. Question 10. You mentioned Otto Skinner, who wrote some really good books about the income tax in terms of it being a tax on activities and not on money or income per se. How does this fit in the context of incurring a liability for income taxes? Answer 10 1. The Congressional record shows that the income tax is a tax on certain activities and privileges, and that it is not a tax on income per se. The income generated by such privilege or activity is only the basis for measuring how much the tax will be. So naturally the question arises for each individual. Am I engaged in a federally taxable activity? And if so, what is that activity? Is working for a living or running a business and making a profit a federally taxable activity? Is being an American a federal privilege? The answer to all these is no. Unfortunately, people were bamboozled to assume that's what's going on. 2. When you see that even Congress admits the income tax cannot possibly work that way, The contractual aspect that creates a federal nexus begins to come into focus as the only way that makes sense when looking at the income tax, especially in light of the Supreme Court saying that the obligation to pay taxes, any tax, is not penal. It is a statutory obligation, quasi-contractual in nature. 3. However, to know how to opt out of income tax, you have to know how you are opting in. You have to exit the same way you entered. This is why they want to keep everyone from clearly understanding how income tax liability actually arises. People were conditioned and propagandized to assume that the second any American receives some money, that person magically owes the IRS a portion of that money. Ironically, this is not far off from how it actually works. But unless there is a federal nexus, there is no constitutional or lawful way to impose such a requirement generally on all Americans. 4. So instead, a hidden contractual mechanism is used to dupe as many Americans as possible into agreeing to make themselves liable. For the majority of Americans, it ends up not as a tax on money or income per se, but a tax on them for being under this hidden contract. The real object of the tax is their privileged federal nexus incurred by signing the Form 1040, which is deemed as an agreement to being treated as exercising a federal privilege within the meaning of the term trade or business within the United States found in the Internal Revenue Code. That term describes the primary nexus of income taxation. Question 11. What agreements and disagreements do you have with Larkin Rose, Erwin Schiff, and David Champion? Answer 11. 1. With Larkin Rose, arguing that he had no income from a source under IRC 861, this is an irrelevant argument and recognized as frivolous on the IRS list of frivolous positions. It says right there in IRC 861 that compensation for services performed in the United States shall be treated as gross income from a source within the United States. So if you have compensation reported on W-2... It does not have to be listed in the source rules of 861. Also, Larkin did not understand the meaning of United States in the Internal Revenue Code. 2. Erwin Schiff argued consistently that wages and salary are not income, but under IRC 861, compensation for services performed in the United States shall be treated as gross income from a source within the United States. So you can see it being quasi-contractual and has nothing to do with what income means in the Constitution. The argument that wages are not income is perhaps the most repeatedly debunked frivolous argument the courts have shot down. 3. Dave Champion, like all the others, does not grasp that the term United States in the IRC does not mean everywhere in America or the country as a whole, i.e. the United States of America. Question 12. Do you agree with Dave Champion's statement in his booklet that Form W 4 is for non resident aliens? Answer 12. No, that is not correct. Form W 4 is properly used for any individual who is to receive federal payments called compensation for services performed in the United States. Your average employers or employees should, but do not know the proper meaning of the terms used in the IRC. Thus, they fail to recognize that such terms cannot and do not pertain to the compensation for services in their private business transactions. 2. Dave Champion gets some of the key things wrong because he equates the United States with the United States of America, but he has a lot of good info and he does not advocate making arguments to the IRS. He tells you to reason with employers or payers who misreport that you had gross income I doubt that approach has a very high rate of success. 3. He seems to think that the term non resident alien is limited to non Americans. He references U.S. persons that file 1040 on behalf of a non resident alien principal. This would be a good description of the most crucial aspect of the income tax scam, whereby American living people who are non resident aliens relative to federal income tax jurisdiction are the principal but unknowingly act as their own U.S. person agent, an officer of a straw man called a United States individual, when they file that 1040 U.S. person income tax return. Of course, we know if they don't file anything, and they have not yet notified IRS of being a foreign status for the SSN, the IRS will presume such person to be a U.S. person anyway, based solely on the SSN. So the SSN alone establishes a presumption of the person's agreement to act as a U.S. person for income tax purposes on behalf of the living person who remains at all times a non-resident alien, even if the filer does not realize it. 4. Alien, in IRC Title 26 U.S.C., only means alien to federal income tax personal jurisdiction, but the same term in Title 8 U.S.C. means a person who is not a citizen or national of the U.S. Question 13. Back in the 1980s, John Kottmayer, and Larry Beecraft put together the Save a Patriot organization and provided services for people to challenge the IRS with their taxes. Their motto for taxation was "Foreigners at home, citizens abroad." Would you care to comment about that? Answer thirteen. It makes no difference whatsoever where a taxpayer is located, except for the exclusion of foreign earned income under Section nine one one. The citizen or resident in the code is generally subjected to tax on all income worldwide. Whether they are abroad is of no moment. See section 1.1 of the regulations. 2. And if anyone thinks, but I wasn't abroad, is an argument that will work. I think that is on the list of IRS frivolous positions. People can learn this with just a smidge of research. The IRS frivolous argument list is a great resource for learning about all the arguments that have been rightfully shot down, and we shall address that in part three. Three. John Cotmare and Larry Beecraft strain to show that the citizen subject tax can only mean a citizen abroad because they fail to see the contractual way the income tax liability arises. So they find some justification for taxing Americans on the basis of their nationality, and settle on, well, if they are abroad, they are getting protection from the government, so that gives Congress basis to tax their income above a certain amount. Or some similar explanation to that effect. 4. Maybe some tax could legally work that way, but this is not how federal income tax works. Besides, I think this argument is featured in the IRS publication, The Truth About Frivolous Tax Arguments. Believe it or not, I don't disagree with anything the IRS says in that document. Some of the cases may be misleading, albeit purposefully, because they don't actually support the points the IRS is making, but they don't say anything false in that document. It is very carefully written so as to make correct statements while using decoy cases to derail tax researchers into divergent and or faulty conclusions. 5. Just had a guy contact me with more than half a million dollar levy because he bought the revocation of election package and even got a dismissal for lack of jurisdiction from tax court, which he thought meant the IRS does not have jurisdiction to enforce the tax on him. Now he is in so deep, there isn't much I can do, certainly not quickly. I told him even if he has to pay all of that, we might be able to establish that he is entitled to a refund. But I can't ever guarantee refunds since I can't make IRS give anybody their money back. 6. It is not hard to find out these other untaxing methods don't work. IRS has cases in their frivolous positions list, and there's probably at least one case shooting down every one of those untaxable approaches or arguments. Once I understood how the income tax works, I was able to see why they all got shot down, and I can explain it in a way that makes sense. Question 14. Your report states, The process of avoiding an income tax assessment is reversible by you. At any time, if you ever truly desire to make a self-assessment of tax for any given tax year, does at any time mean that someone who filed Hendrickson-style 10 years ago can refile a self-assessment and avoid the IRS final assessment? Answer 14. 1. No, there is a three-year statute of limitations when you file a return to amend, so long as the return is treated as valid by the IRS. When I made that statement, it was in the context of a not-filing strategy. That report was written more than four years ago, and some things I say in there are things that I would phrase differently today. Question 15. Your report also states, Once the IRS knows you could expose the scam of fraudulent misapplication of income tax laws in court, the government will not dare prosecute you and IRS will not risk being sued by you by trying to take a cent of your money or other property. How does the IRS get away with collecting anything when they could be sued for trying to take a cent of your money based on your falling for their misapplication of income tax law? Answer 15 I don't accept this premise as true, that IRS could be sued for trying to take a cent of your money based on your falling for their misapplication of income tax law. I think you are lifting my statement out from the context in which it was written. The context assumes you have properly resolved your battles with the IRS, administratively. 2. A lot of people may think they understand how to expose the scam of fraudulent misapplication of income tax laws in court. They actually do not. So the IRS naturally has no fear of prosecuting or collecting against such people. 3. Take this argument for example. 1 compliance with the Internal Revenue Laws is voluntary or optional and not required by law. 4. The IRS said it is not frivolous, not necessarily that it is wrong, but if you allowed or created a tax liability for yourself, then this argument is frivolous. You don't have the option to say that payment of what you owe is not required by law. On the other hand, If you have not allowed or created a tax liability for yourself, you do not need this argument, do you? It is moot. Five. This is why these arguments all fail. They are not evidence-based. They are pure legal arguments. If the evidence was in your favor, you would not need any of these arguments. If the evidence is not in your favor, none of these arguments will do you any good. It seems very complicated, but if you recognize this, it all starts to be a lot simpler. 6. Assuming some people in the audience are non-filers, how do you suppose these people typically respond to a CP59 from the IRS or other notice saying that the IRS has no record of receiving a return for X year and requesting them to file a tax return? 7. I think this is important to cover because how one handles the matter before the assessment is made is crucial. When the IRS sends a demand to file, It means they have information that creates a presumption that you have a filing requirement and their records do not show that a return was filed. Thus, their request for you to either file or explain why you're not required to file. 8. You can file a return to establish there is no tax liability, or establish whatever you determine the correct tax is, and this is your chance to refute the information the IRS is relying on. Ironically, in this scenario, you may be filing a return in order to establish that you're not required to file a return. 9. The alternative is to use their response form or send your own statement, signed under penalty of perjury, to explain why you believe you are not required to file. 10. 10. Your return or statement signed under penalty of perjury is what renders your response as evidence. Sworn signed testimony is evidence. 11. I suspect many people refuse to respond to such notices and if they do, they likely do not provide a statement under penalty of perjury. This is why the IRS does not have to take it seriously. Any arguments about this or that are not evidence. Only your testimony of what you determined is admissible as administrative or court evidence. 12. The IRS has what is called prima facie evidence, which opens the presumption that you have a filing requirement. They give you notice of that when they demand a return. This notice places a burden of production on you to either file a return or to provide at the very least a sworn statement explaining why you believe you are not required to file. 13. This is not burden of proof. It is burden of production. As long as you file a valid return, or at least respond with a reasonable explanation of why you're not required to file, you will have met your burden of production. As a practical matter, a return is best because it leaves the IRS less wiggle room. They have to initially accept a valid return, even if they later on decide to audit that return. If you just respond with a sworn statement saying that you're not required to file, they might accept it but it is also possible they might just keep going and send you more notices, eventually issuing a 30-day letter and notice of deficiency, etc. This is because they are so automated. If someone neglects to tell the IRS computer to stop sending you demands to file for that year, the notices will continue until eventually an examiner opens an SFR examination. Substitute for return. 14. People commonly complain that SFR is illegal for various reasons, but it is not for the simple reason that an SFR exam is predicated on the failure of the taxpayer to file a return, which, according to the prima facie evidence, the taxpayer is required to file. So at that point, the taxpayer is presumed to be in breach or dishonor of what he obligated himself to do. Under those circumstances, the IRS is authorized by Congress to determine a deficiency based on available information, and proceed as if the taxpayer had filed a return with $0 gross income and $0 tax. Question 16. Wasn't Glenn Ambort prosecuted for telling people to file non-resident Alien Form 1040-NR? Answer 16. 1. He was prosecuted for conspiracy to defraud the United States. He advised people to say this or that on their returns to get refunds with no apparent regard Or whether or not it was true what they were saying, based on lack of supporting evidence. 2. So the courts do protect the income tax, and they do mislead in their dicta, when necessary, to protect the income tax. But the courts are not as corrupt as many people assume. Lower courts often make the wrong decision, especially tax court, leaving it up to the taxpayer to appeal. That is their mentality, unfortunately. 3. I am dealing with such a scenario with my client's appeal. The tax court clearly should have dismissed the case for lack of jurisdiction, and in any case, should have shifted burden of proof to IRS. 4. I found when Congress defined the term non-resident alien in the IRC. Are you ready for this? 1984. How symbolic of them. Of course, the term was used by Treasury in TD-2313 in 1916. Frank Bruchaber being an example, and I have seen a SCOTUS tax case where the term was used in the late 1800s. Public Law 98-369, 98th Congress, an act July 18th, 1984, to provide for tax reform and for deficit reduction. Part 5. Treatment of Alien Individual, Section 138. Definition of Resident Alien and Non-Resident Alien, Ante, page 518a. General Rule, Section 7701, relating to definitions, is 26 Use 7701, amended by redesignating subsections B, C, and D as subsections C, D, and E, respectively, and by inserting after subsection A the following new subsection B. Definition of Resident Alien and Non Resident Alien. 1. In general. For purposes of this title, other than, subtitle B, A. Resident Alien. An alien individual shall be treated as a resident of the United States with respect to any calendar year if, and only if, such individual meets the requirements for Clause 1 or 2. 1. Lawfully admitted for permanent residence, such individual is a lawful permanent resident of the United States at any time during the calendar year. 2. Substantial Presence Test. Such individual meets the substantial presence test of paragraph 3. B. Nonresident alien. An individual is a non-resident alien if such individual is neither a citizen of the United States nor a resident of the United States within the meaning of subparagraph A. 5. I also found that the all-important election to be treated as a resident alien provision was added in the 1986 Tax Reform Act which made many amendments to the 1954 code. It was de facto in place going back to 1919 when the 1040 first featured this question. Are you a citizen or resident of the United States? Sneaky, huh? Six. This was done in the aftermath of World War I, which had seen a lot of patriotic Americans pay income tax. I think the government had gotten used to all that money rolling in and wanted to keep it going. So they devised this swindle, scam, of getting Americans to call themselves citizens or residents of the United States, so that all of their income could be taxed. I believe, even back then, they already had their eye on finding a way to dupe Americans into an income tax on wages and salary. 7. If they can dupe you into declaring yourself a U.S. citizen or resident, it does not take much from there to be able to tax your wages and salary, as gross income. Once you declare that status, your wages or salary become compensation for services performed in the United States, per IRC 861, that is treated as gross income from sources within the United States. The Supreme Court gave an important clue regarding the term source. From whatever source derived, as it is written in the 16th Amendment, does not mean from whatever source derived. Evans v. Gore two hundred and fifty three US two hundred and forty five forty S C T five fifty sixty four L eight eight seven eleven ALR five one nine. See also Robertson versus Baldwin one hundred sixty five US two seven five two eight one two eight two seventeen SCT three two six four one L E D seven one five. Gompers vs. United States, 233 U.S. 604 610, 34 SCT 693 58 L. Ed. 1115 Ann Cass 1950 D 1044, Bane Peanut Company vs. Pinson, 282 U.S. 499 501 51, SCT 228 229 75 L. Ed. 482 United States versus Lefkowitz, 285-US-452-467-52-SCT-420, 424-76-LED-877-822-ALR-775. 420, Wright versus United States-DI, 302-US-583-58-SCT-395-82-LED-439-1938. 8. Furthermore, In 1966, they added the term effectively connected income to the definition of gross income for a non-resident alien, NRA. Before that, the only income that was actually from a source within the United States would be gross income to a NRA. When you recognize that all Americans are non-resident aliens every year by default, whenever they file a 1040 for that year, this creates this effectively connected nexus that allows for a purely contractual liability to be created. Before 1966, it was just a mistake of law if a non-resident alien filed as a U.S. person and declared all his income as gross income. 9. The introduction of this effectively connected nexus allows for the liability to be created quasi-contractually, even if done by mistake and therefore it is more solidly legal because there is from that point a basis in the code for liability to arise that way. As if to further cover their asses, they added National of the United States to the code in 1972 in a provision for non-resident aliens. And then later, in 1986, the added election to be treated as a resident alien created a quasi-contractual basis for U.S. person, whereas before that, it would have just been purely mistake of law on the part of the non-resident alien filer. 10. So they knew since 1919, if not earlier, that they were relying on deception to dupe 1040 filers into liability based on the filer's mistake of law. They wanted tax liability to be more legally solid, so they added those provisions to the code in 1966, 1972, and in 1986 that would transform what had been up to that point our reliance on pure mistakes of law by the 1040 filer into quasi-contractual devices for American non-resident aliens to effectively opt in to being liable by filing a 1040. This gave everyone running the scam much more plausible deniability than they had before. 11. Also worth noting in what I found is that the term resident alien was not defined in the IRC until 1984, so it seems there was no good way to know before 1984 that resident of the United States actually means resident alien of the United States. 12. In my mind, the development of their scam is coming together. Since 1913, they had relied purely on mistakes of law by errant American 1040 filers. They must have ultimately realized this would not pass legal muster if anyone ever discovered this scam, especially once they started collecting income tax from working people in the 1940s and 50s. 13. So in 1967, they introduced this effectively connected language into the IRC and it also introduced the form 1040-NR where effectively connected income can be reported while on the 1040 form, it is just income. The effectively connected language establishes a legal basis in IRC for a purely electional means of creating one's tax liability. Fourteen. The IRS plausible deniability is in how are they supposed to know you did not knowingly choose to effectively connect your income to a trade or business? 15. They wanted to be able to more clearly place the fault on the 1040 filers' shoulders. So next, they make sure to define resident alien and non-resident alien in 1984 for the first time. Then, two years later, they revamped the IRC to make the 1040 an election to be treated as a resident alien, carefully avoiding using the term non-resident alien in that provision. They had always used the term citizen or resident of the United States in the internal revenue laws going back to the 1910s. It was very deceptive of Congress to use the term resident all those years in the income tax laws without adding alien to it 16 I went back and looked at old 1040 instructions to see if at least Treasury gave 1040 filers a clue that resident equals resident alien. This makes it much easier to see that the citizen of the United States they are referring to cannot be the same as an American national. Without that word alien after resident, it is far more misleading, especially when we see from that 1928 case and Treasury decision how Treasury defined residents. It was not limited to aliens. So I suppose they found it important to get a definition of resident alien in the IRC to give themselves some legal cover. 17. 1938-1040 Instructions a. Who must make a return? For each taxable year, a return of income shall be made by every citizen of the United States, whether residing at home or abroad, and every individual residing within the United States, though not a citizen thereof, whether or not he is the head of a family or has dependents. Clearly, Every individual residing within the United States, though not a citizen thereof, means a resident alien. In 1984 law, they did not so much define the term as add a provision by which certain individuals would be treated as resident aliens for income tax purposes. 18. In 1986, they added to that provision the so-called first-year election. But there is nothing first-year about it. The election can be made every year by a non-resident alien. So that seems to be the primary purpose of adding those provisions to 7701B in 1984-1986. to I was shocked to find they did not define non-resident alien until 1984. Very shocked. Very important to note that at the same time, they defined resident alien for the first time. Most people seem not to see the contractual aspect, which seems so obvious to me. 19. Even Pete H. recognized the contractual aspect, but he did not go far enough. He failed to recognize, or pretends to fail to recognize, the contractual implication of declaring yourself a U.S. individual when you file a 1040, and he has no clue about how the SSN is presumed to belong to a U.S. person. It's significant. C. 26 CFR-301.6109-1G 20. I can't remember where I first learned about that regulation, but it is huge. What is really interesting is that they don't bother to explain what would be proof of foreign status to change the status of your SSN to non-resident alien, but I have found that filing 1040NR seems to do the trick. 21. And as long as you don't send them proof of foreign status, they can just keep on presuming that your SSN belongs to a U.S. person and you are presumed to be required to report all income as gross income. 22. This is why nobody's legal arguments against the income tax ever work. They are presumed U.S. persons, so any money they receive is going to be gross income, unless there is a specific provision of the code that excludes it. 23. So all the IRS has to do is show evidence that the person received income they did not report. It is as easy as getting payroll records or bank records. Question 17. Attorney Larry Craft has a memo at the link on the screen addressing the term nationals. Do you wish to comment about it? Answer 17. 1. This is disinformation. Why is he citing the Iowa Administrative Code and Washington Administrative Code? Those seem to be his basis for this dubious claim. The following are the only persons classified as U.S. nationals. 1. Persons born in American Samoa or Swains Island after December 24, 1952. And 2 residents of the Northern Mariana Islands who did not elect to become U.S. citizens. Three, there's no provision in federal law by which Congress purports to limit the meaning of National of the United States to American Samoans, etc. Not even in Title 8 U.S.C. Congress has no authority to tell Americans they are not nationals of the United States. Even the regulation Becraft cites, which is not an act of Congress, does not purport to exclude Americans generally from the meaning of national of the United States. National means a person who owes permanent allegiance to the United States, for example, as a result of birth in a United States territory or possession. Even he admits that this is only one definition. One definition of this word appears in 24 CFR section 5.504. 5. Check out this provision of IRC which was enacted by Congress. C. The sole relief and remedy of any person having any claim to any property vested pursuant to section 202a shall be that provided by the terms of subsection a or b of this section, and in the event of the liquidation by sale or otherwise of such property, shall be limited to and enforced against the net proceeds received therefrom and held by the designee of the president. The claim of any person based on his ownership of shares of stock or other proprietary interest in a corporation, which was the the owner of property at the date of vesting thereof under Section 202A shall be allowable under subsection A or B of this section if twenty-five percentum or more of the outstanding capital stock or other proprietary interest in the corporation was owned at such date by nationals of countries other than Bulgaria. Hungary, Romania, Germany, or Japan, but no such claim of a national of a foreign country shall be satisfied except after certification by the Department of State that the country of the national accords protection to nationals of the United States in similar types of cases. Look at except after certification by the Department of State that the country of the national accords protection to nationals of the United States in similar types of cases. Clearly, nationals of the United States is referring to anyone who is not a foreign national that is from current internal revenue code taxation of blocked assets vesting of property owned by Bulgaria Hungary or Romania act of August 9th 1955 C 645 69 stat 562 PL 284 84th congress first session HR 6382 22 USC 1631 -1631N An Act to amend the International Claims Settlement Act of 1949 as it amended for other purposes. Here is the entire act attached. WK Current Internal Revenue Code. Taxation of Blocked Assets Vesting of Property Owned by Bulgaria, Hungary or Romania. Unlike the authorities becraft sites, this is actually an act of Congress enacted as part of the Internal Revenue Code. 6 Also, federal courts have routinely and matter-of-factly referred to Americans generally as nationals of the United States. U.S. nationals or United States nationals, which is not actually a term found in any federal law. It is always national of the United States. So we must be careful not to confuse U.S. national with U.S. person. I have many court of claims cases as examples. It should be noted... The naturalization is by definition the conferring of nationality, not citizenship. C-8, U.S.C. 1101. Look at these sections, 21, 22, and 23. 21. The term national means a person owing permanent allegiance to a state. 22. The term national of the United States means A, a citizen of the United States, or b a person who, though not a citizen of the United States, owes permanent allegiance to the United States. 23. The term naturalization means the conferring of nationality of a state, country, upon a person after birth, by any means whatsoever. 7. Clearly, neither of those purport to exclude Americans from the definition of national of the United States, nor could they. Congress has no lawful power to define nationality for Americans who have such nationality by birthright or by naturalization. And they certainly have no lawful power to tax American nationality. Even though most people assume that if you are American, you have to pay the IRS your fair share, this is preposterous. Eight. Also interesting is the way Beecraft sheds all other crackpot theories in no uncertain terms, but seems to have just thrown in this national bit at the end without ever claiming that anyone is using this or even claiming it has been debunked, as he so thoroughly does with every other argument. Question 18. So, do you wish to start addressing the United States issue? Answer 18. 1. Well, it seems everyone makes a big deal about the meaning of United States at IRC 7701, but nobody seems to notice that the IRC defines United States only in its geographical sense. What about its non-geographical sense? 2. United States, when used in any federal law, is nearly always a thing, not a place or piece of land. This is because the United States is the name of the federal government itself and all of its property and territory. You could have a federal tax liability, wherever you may be physically, by engaging in a federally regulated activity or exercising a federal privilege. Congressional jurisdiction for imposing income taxes is not territorial jurisdiction in the sense of the tax only applying if you are standing on a certain piece of land. 3. That is how the union states operate, for the most part, but even the states don't work that way for income tax purposes in the case of resident of that state. A resident of California is subject to income tax on all income, whether or not it came from California. So this is not a territorial jurisdiction being exercised. It is a personal jurisdiction that is non-geographical. Federal income tax jurisdiction works the same way for United States persons, which is the federal equivalent of a resident for state income tax purposes. 4. A non-resident of New York can be required to report and pay income tax only on gross income from sources within New York. By the same token, a federal non-resident alien can only be required to report and pay tax only on gross income that is effectively connected with the conduct of trade or business within the United States, or from income from sources within the United States. In either case, the term United States is not being used in its geographical sense there. What it really means is that income from federal government sources is gross income, no matter who or where you are. Question 19. You stated that a non-resident of New York can be required to report and pay income tax only on gross income from sources within New York. Does this mean that the state can impose a direct tax on the people, their property, or private affairs? Answer 19. 1. Maybe a state can do that, but that is not how any state income tax works. All state income taxes are imposed on taxable income which is computed from gross income, just like in the IRC. If you don't have any federal income tax, you also shouldn't have any state income tax. They work the same way. Two, the term resident is used by the states for state income tax in the same way the term citizen or resident of the United States is used by federal government for federal income tax. On state level, you are still subject to tax on gross income, just as in the IRC. Three, The resident status helps determine what your state tax home is, and that state would have the right to tax you on gross income from outside that state. Of course, they cannot do that to a non-resident. Question 20. You stated, nobody seems to notice that the IRC defines United States only in its geographical sense. Why and how does this not mean that the IRC relates only to the United States, as in D.C., possessions, territories? enclaves? Answer 20. One. When you're dealing with scammers like the U.S. Congress, you often will find clues in what they do not say. Why do they not provide any definition of United States in its non-geographical sense anywhere in the IRC? It is this very absence that leads people astray to argue that United States only means D.C., etc., and they get to penalize it as frivolous argument. Two. From IRS Notice 2010-33 at Item 3, this position includes the argument that the United States does not include all or part of the physical territory of the 50 states and instead consists of only places such as the District of Columbia, Commonwealths, and territories, e.g. Puerto Rico, and federal enclaves, e.g. Native American reservations and military installations Or similar arguments, as described as frivolous in Revelation Ruling 2004-28, 2004-1, CB 624, or Revelation Ruling 2007-22, 2007-1, CB 866, three. Here is the problem with all arguments that are deemed frivolous. They are found frivolous when used by a taxpayer to try to get out of an obligation that was already created, administratively, according to the evidence in the record. 4. And why is it frivolous to argue that United States considers only of D.C. etc.? Because the tax is imposed non-geographically. Look at 26 CFR 1.1-1. The tax is imposed on a citizen wherever resident and resident aliens on all income of source in other words all income worldwide so how could the definition of united states even matter if you're already established on the record as a citizen or resident of the united states this is why you have to see how the scam works and understand how the w2 or 1099 or whatever else is being used as evidence against you. If you were on trial for murder, and they came forward with false evidence, you'd be crazy not to say something. Yet people sit there and let false evidence go unrefuted in their tax matters. Then they wonder why the IRS won't listen to them. Five. So think about what a United States person must mean. Again, United States is not being used in its geographical sense. You can see this by breaking down what a United States person is if one individual as opposed to a corporation or partnership, trust, or a state. An individual is a U.S. person if such individual is a citizen or resident of the United States. An individual is a U.S. person if such individual is a citizen or resident of the United States. 26 CFR 1.1-1B states that the citizen, wherever resident, is subject to tax on all income. So it matters not where one is located. 6. SCOTUS settled that in Cook v. Tate case. Cook was living in Mexico the entire tax year, and with only Mexican-sourced income, was denied a refund. Cook argued that Congress had no authority to tax him when he was not located in the USA. SCOTUS disagreed. 7. This is a very important case for understanding that citizen of the United States is a contractual term. What made Cook a citizen of the United States? Well... He called himself one in his petition to the court. More importantly, Cook had filed a 1040 on which he declared himself a citizen or resident of the United States. 8. They asked this question on the form and he answered yes under penalty of perjury. That was all they needed to impose tax on his income regardless of where it came from. Even his rental income from Mexican real estate. Even though he had lived in the USA for 20 years. 9. The tax was imposed under the Revenue Act of nineteen twenty one which provides by section two ten forty two stat two two seven two three three comp saint amp support nineteen twenty three section six three three six one slash eight e that in lieu of the tax imposed by section two ten of the Revenue Act of nineteen eighteen there shall be levied collected and paid for each taxable year upon the net income of every individual a normal tax of 8% of the amount of the net income in excess of the credits provided in Section 216, provided that in the case of a citizen or resident of the United States, the rate upon the first 4000 of such excess amount shall be 4%. One note, the Act imposed an 8% tax on every individual but provided a 4% rate on the first $4,000 in the case of a U.S. citizen or resident. So 8% on non-resident aliens and 4% on the first 4000 if you are a citizen or resident. Cook took the 4% rate on his return, accepting the benefit of the lower tax rate. 10. Cook did not realize he was a non-resident alien and could have simply excluded all his non-federal income from gross income in the first place. He did not need this benefit of a lower tax rate on the first $4,000 of gross income. Nonetheless, Cook did accept this benefit. Duh. I have seen his nineteen twenty one tax return, though the particulars of his return are not mentioned in the Scotus case. Why would the court explain exactly how Cook had gotten himself under contract? That would have given the scam away. Twelve. They make it look like everyone has to pay an eight per cent tax and that you get this big tax break and only have to pay four per cent on the first four thousand dollars if only you declare yourself a citizen or resident of the United States. Very sneaky. 13. Note the use of the term every individual instead of what they really mean, every non-resident alien individual. Look at the 1040 instructions for every year. 1913. 1. This return shall be made by every citizen of the United States, whether residing at home or abroad, and by every person residing in the United States, though not a citizen thereof, having a net income of $3,000 or over, for the taxable year, and also by every non-resident alien deriving income from property-owned business and business trade or profession, property-owned and business trade or profession carried on in the United States by him. See that? By every non-resident alien deriving income from property, owned and business trade or profession carried on in the United States by him. They had no problem using the term non-resident alien in 1913. Same thing with the 1040 instructions for 1916. 2. This return shall be made by every non-resident alien receiving any net income from sources in the United States. A non-resident alien individual may receive the benefit of the personal exemption only by filing or causing to be filed with the collector of internal revenue, a true and accurate return of his total income received from all sources, corporate or otherwise, in the United States. Fourteen. But, after the Bruchabber case was decided, and after Treasury Decision 2313 in 1916, suddenly, in 1917, there is no mention of non-resident aliens in the 1040 instructions. 15. In 1918, there is no mention of citizens or residents in the 1040 instructions, just an unspecified you and your. 1. Calculate your net income by filing in page 2 of the worksheet according to page 2 of the instructions. 2. Add the net income of your wife or husband and dependent minor children, if any, except as provided in paragraph 5. 3. The total family income, calculated in accordance with paragraphs 1 and 2, must be reported either in your return or in a separate return by wife or husband, if it is equaled or exceeded. A. A. if you were married and lived with your wife or husband. b. $1,000 if you are not married or did not live with your wife or husband. 4. In any case, you must make a return if your net income equaled or exceeded the amount of your personal exemption, not including any additional exemption allowed you as head of family or on account of dependents. 5. Income of a minor or incompetent, if derived from a separate estate under control of a guardian, trustee, or other fiduciary, must be reported by his guardian or her legal representative. 6. If your wife or husband had any separate income, she or he should make a separate return. 16. It is very important to recognize that Cook v. Tate in 1924 was almost a reaction to the Bruchabber case in 1916. And the aftermath, where Treasury referred to this American Bruchabber as a non-resident alien. Bruchabber did not file a 1040. Tax was withheld by Union Pacific because Union was what's called a domestic corporation, which in that case meant a federal corporation. 17. So I am looking at the old Revenue Acts to make sure of the timing, but by 1919 the 1040 asked on the form if you were citizen or resident of the United States. They needed to get Americans bamboozled to waive their non-resident alien status. In 1921, as mentioned, they had this lower 4% rate on the first $4,000 if you declare yourself a citizen or resident of the United States on 1040. 18. It all started in 1919 Revenue Act where there was a 12% rate on the net income of every individual, but a 6% rate on the first $4,000 in the case of a citizen or resident of the United States. So, they subtly refer to non resident aliens in the Revenue Act without actually using the term non resident alien. By the nineteen nineteen tax year, World War I was over. A wave of patriotic fervor had led to many Americans paying income tax during the war years. They seem to have hatched this scam to keep that going. Nineteen George Cook is just one example of an American who received a demand to file a return from the collector. Otherwise, he probably would not have done so. Trust in government was never higher than in those days. Cook felt they were mistaken, but not fathomed the deception involved. 20. In the 1913 and 1916 Revenue Acts, a NRA paid the same tax rate as a citizen or resident, but obviously a NRA was subject to tax only on income from sources within the United States, which I hope is becoming quite clear, has a very special meaning. 21. So in 1919, the 1040 form had the question, are you a citizen or resident of the United States in combination with the enticement of the new lower tax rate of 4% on the first $4,000 for those who declared their status as citizen or resident of the United States. This was a big step in the deceptiveness of the income tax. They continued to ask that question on 1040 form until 1938 when they introduced separate return forms for NRAs and renamed the 1040 form the United States Individual Income Tax Return. 22. So I knew that Cook had declared himself a citizen on a 1040 form, but then I realized that he accepted the 4% benefit which makes the contract substantive. Not just nominal or mistake of law. This has continued to today where a citizen or resident gets a standard deduction and can itemize many personal deductions than a NRA cannot. 23. People are led to worrying about deductions and credits and they never think about whether they had any gross income to begin with or whether they have income that could be lawfully excluded from tax because it does not qualify as gross income and they never consider whether or not they are citizens or residents of the United States. 24. Here is the reasoning of SCOTUS in Cook v. Tate in affirming the lower court decision to uphold the collector's denial, Cook's refund claim. We may make further exposition of the national power as the case depends on it. It was illustrated at once in United States v. Bennett by a contrast with the power of a state. It was pointed out that there were limitations upon the latter that were not on the national power. The taxing power of a state, it was decided, encountered at its borders the taxing power of other states, and was limited by them. There was no such limitation, it was pointed out, upon the national power, and that the limitation upon the state affords, it was said, no ground for constructing a barrier around the United States, shutting that government off from the exertion of power, who inherently belonged to, by virtue of its sovereignty, Look at shutting the government off from the exertion of powers which inherently belong to the virtue of its sovereignty. You have to understand that the only thing SCOTUS needed to address was Cook's own argument. Nothing else. Plaintiff assigns against the power, not only his rights under the Constitution of the United States, but under international law and in support of the assignment cites many cases. It will be observed that the foundation of the assignments is the fact that the citizen receiving the income and the property of which it is the product are outside of the territorial limits of the United States. These two facts, the contention is, exclude the existence of the power to tax. Or to put the contention another way, to the existence of the power and its exercise, the person receiving the income and the property from which he receives it must both be within the territorial limits of the United States to be within the taxing power of the United States. The contention is not justified, and that it is not justified is the necessary deduction of recent cases. This is the end of it right here. His contentions were not justified. They had the power to tax because Cook himself gave it to them. Cook effectively cooked himself by accepting the benefit of the lower tax rate, 4% on the first $4,000, afforded only to a citizen or resident of the United States, which he said he was on the 1040. Cook made all of his worldwide income from 1921 subject to the provisions of the 1921 Revenue Act. The only question raised by Cook was this. The question in the case, and which was presented by the demurrer to the declaration, is, as expressed by the plaintiff, whether Congress has power to impose a tax upon income received by a native citizen of the United States who, at the time the income was received, was permanently resident and domiciled in the city of Mexico, the income being from real and personal property located in Mexico. The lower court answered yes to this question, and SCOTUS affirmed. Question 21. What about the revocation of election, ROE, process that uses the non-resident alien position? Answer 21. 1. ROE is just one way of using the non-resident alien position. Any position where you claim to be immune from taxes because you are a NRA is frivolous. No question about it. 2. There are plenty of court cases where the taxpayer argued he was a NRA in order to try to get out of his tax or his conviction. This never works. It goes to show the battle is won or lost in the preparation, per Sun Tzu. You cannot just show up in court at the last minute and recite some magic words. My approach works because it is based on such understanding. There is no argument per se. We rely on knowing how to determine status and gross income and how to properly convey that to the IRS. It is important to have some sense of how to defend your position if the IRS or state challenges you, but that is very advanced. Some people may learn enough to be confident doing that themselves, but the vast majority will not be confident doing that on their own. 4. I've had people want the elevator speech version, asking... What's the argument? The question assumes you have to argue your way out of a liability that somehow already exists. This is the wrong question. 5. As far as the ROE goes, it is easier to just show why it is frivolous and cannot work. The reason is simple. NRAs can be subject to tax too, so it makes no sense to claim, I am an NRA, so, you see, I cannot possibly be liable for any tax. C. 26 CFR 1.1-1 and IRC-871. This is one the IRS covers in the frivolous list, and they are correct to call this frivolous, but they also muddy the waters to make it seem like no one can ever claim to be a NRA. That's stupid, but they do it because they don't want anyone coming anywhere near that position. It is too close to how the truth of the tax work. They know Americans are non-resident aliens relative to income tax. They rely on duping Americans into filing Form 1040 every year to make an election to be treated as a resident alien, per irc seven. 7- B six, and if they cannot get you to file the ten forty, they can fall back on the presumption that the SSN assigned to your person belongs to a citizen or resident of the United States, unless or until they are informed otherwise. We'll address the SSN matter in part two by reference to the Walby case. Another untaxing method people have used is the original issued discount (OID), also in the IRS frivolous position list. I agree with what the IRS says there. I get the feeling people don't look at this list or do not take it seriously. The OID method is most likely to land you in prison. It is fraud. The other approaches will likely get you penalized with frivolous penalties and other adverse financial consequences. But I know people who have been prosecuted for filing OID returns. Understanding the term United States for the purpose of the IRC start with what people assume it means. This is where everyone goes wrong. So look at what it does not mean without diving into all the legalese right away. It does not mean the United States of America. Yet doesn't everyone pretty much assume it does? Once you understand that you are permitted to construe United States as meaning only the federal government in the income tax provisions, you can plug that meaning in wherever the term is used. This helps you see clearly what a non-resident alien is per IRC 7701B1B. It helps you see what the NRA is taxed on per Section 871. You are permitted to construe United States that way, so this leads to being permitted to construe non-resident alien to include you, so long as you are not a citizen or resident alien of the United States. And you may freely construe the IRC as lacking jurisdiction over any income you had that was not from engaging in trade or business within the United States or from a source within the United States. Once you understand that there is nothing to stop you to construe United States as meaning only the federal government in the income tax provisions, you can plug that meaning wherever the term is used in the IRC section. This requires understanding just one very important rule for interpreting tax statutes, which SCOTUS has mentioned many times. My point is that this rule should be explained. Rule of construction. It is not necessary to explain every rule of construction. But that is a big one people should understand before attempting to read statutes. Doubt in the language of a tax statute is resolved against the government. The language of the law must clearly and unequivocally impose liability or there is no imposition. I don't think anybody can do this without help. Some may eventually be confident enough to go on their own, but there is always the risk of a challenge from the IRS or state after their turn is accepted. I offer what is effectively I offer what is effectively insurance on the back end for those two to three years before they are pretty much in the clear from any audit. I had even a very knowledgeable client who had no idea what to do when he got audited. I got him through it and the IRS closed his audits with no changes to his return or his tax. Experience matters a lot when you have to tangle with these agencies, not just IRS, states too. State tax agencies are more likely to give you a problem than IRS. Question 22. How would you explain this in 8th grade terms? Answer 22. Look at the term, citizen of the United States. For example, most people think that the term means any American, but if that is true, where's the evidence in the law for that? Why does it not say in the law this means an American citizen? I think 26 CFR 1.1-1 is a good place to start because the way to understand what citizen means in the code is to see the effect this citizen status has on a person tax-wise. As you say, a U.S. person, citizen, or resident is taxed on all worldwide income. So what does that tell us about what United States means? If it means USA, then IRC Section 1 is imposing a tax on you just because you are American. Now, of course, that is exactly how normies think the tax works. But American nationality is a right, is it not? Does Congress have any authority to strip away nationality from any American? Can an American be deported? So can Congress tax your American nationality? They can't. And that is how we know citizen of the United States in IRC cannot equal American nationality. So that is how we know United States cannot mean the USA, at least not in the context of a citizen of the United States. Also worth mentioning that SCOTUS recognized at least three different meanings for the term United States. So we don't sound crazy. That is not a new data point. A lot of people mention that. But worth noting, I have not seen anyone make the point that we are meant to believe Congress somehow has the power to tax you just because you are an American. Nonsense. A right cannot be taxed, or it is not a right. I think that is obvious, yes? If Congress had any power over your nationality, they could punish you for a crime by kicking you out of the country and or take away your nationality. But they cannot, and for the same reason... They cannot tax it. Nationality by birth is by right of the soil. Just soli. An old maxim of law. By naturalization is just as solid. Equal footing as anyone born into American nationality. So you eliminate what it cannot mean and work with what is left. Generally, United States in federal law refers to the federal government itself if they do not provide a definition for the term. You have to go back to organic law to see that. Articles of Confederation and Constitution Question 23. Okay, so one should start outside the IRC to get the United States meaning in the IRC? Answer 23. IRC does not exist in a vacuum. Of course you should look to organic law for context. So there is no reasonable basis for anyone to assume citizen of United States in IRC means any American based on the obligation that comes with it. 26 CFR 1.1-1. It must be a voluntary chosen status. Otherwise, it would be slavery. It is a great place to start because once you get what United States means, you realize you do not need to worry about a lot of this other shit. Everything important uses the term United States. As far as understanding just one very important rule for interpreting tax statutes, which SCOTUS has mentioned many times, look up Spriegel Sugar Refining Company versus McLean. One ninety two U.S. three nine seven nineteen o four Spreckels Sugar Refining Company versus McLean number one o three argued december third nineteen o three decided february twenty third nineteen o four one ninety two U.S. three ninety seven keeping in mind the well settled rule that the citizen is exempt from taxation unless the same is imposed by clear and unequivocal language and that where the construction of a tax law is doubtful the doubt is to be resolved in favor of those upon whom the tax is sought to be laid. Based on the obligation that comes with it, 26 CFR 1.1-1, it must be a voluntary chosen status. Note that Treasury explains who is a citizen at 1.1-1c, but there is no definition in the code, so this regulation is not based on any income tax statute enacted by Congress. But the Treasury definition gives us a couple of clues in this definition. c. Who is a citizen? Every person born or naturalized in the United States and subject to its jurisdiction is a citizen. Every person born or naturalized in the United States and subject to its jurisdiction is a citizen. Note, they do not actually say such person is a citizen of the United States, only a citizen. So this is arguably ambiguous right there. But for the sake of continuing on, let's give them benefit of doubt and assume they mean citizen of the United States. Even that is not the term used in the code. It is always citizen or resident of the United States, as if to make clear that the meaning of citizen here is functionally equivalent to a resident, i.e. a resident alien of the United States. We do see the term resident alien of the United States at 7701B standing all by itself, but we never see the term citizen or citizen of the United States standing by itself in the code. Odd, right? So let me clarify. We don't see the term citizen standing alone in the provisions imposing tax. There are instances where the citizen used by itself is in the code, but we are interested in determining whether the tax is imposed on a person or cannot. So Section 1 imposes tax on taxable income of various kinds of individuals. At 26 CFR 1.1-1, they break this down to show the different treatment for the income of a citizen or resident of the United States. Note that a citizen and a resident is treated exactly the same, compared to the treatment of the income of a non-resident alien. Section 1.1-1 Income Tax on Individuals A. General Rule 1. Section 1 of the Code Imposes an income tax on the income of every individual who is a citizen or resident of the United States and, to the extent provided by Section 871B or 877B, on the income of a non-resident alien individual. Note how the regulation makes it clear that Section 1 is pretty much imposing said tax only on citizens or residents of the United States and refers the reader to a different section for imposing the tax on the non-resident aliens. But the IRC Section 1 imposes tax on the taxable income of every individual. Yet the related regulation 26 CFR 1.1 makes it clear that for a citizen or resident of the United States, taxable income means all income, whether it is from sources within or without the United States. So functionally, citizen or resident of the United States equals a status which requires you to include all income as gross income for purposes of computing your tax liability. Again, let's note that they stick citizen and resident together for the purpose of imposing tax on all income of the individuals who have either status. But the Treasury definition gives us a couple of clues in this definition. C. Who is a citizen? Every person born or naturalized in the United States and subject to its jurisdiction is a citizen. There is another big clue in that United States is referred to with the pronoun its, subject to its jurisdiction. What does this indicate about what United States means in that context? The country? The federal government? Is it singular or plural? The other big clue is the and subject to language. Very similar to the language of Fourteenth Amendment, but with one significant difference in the wording. Fourteenth says "and subject to the jurisdiction thereof," and Twenty-six CFR says "and subject to its jurisdiction." Now, many people mistakenly equate Fourteenth Amendment citizen with the citizen in IRC. This is erroneous because the states are the authors of the Constitution and Congress is the author of federal laws which include the IRC statutes. So the context is different. United States in 14th Amendment refers to the states who are members of the Union. Anyone born in any one of those states and subject to the jurisdiction of that state, i.e., not an alien who just happens to be on the land when he or she is born, is a citizen of all of the states collectively. This is what United States means there, and of the particular state in which he resides. Because he is a citizen of all of the states collectively, he becomes a citizen of any state in which he chooses to live in. United States in the 14th Amendment is plural, as indicated by the reference to an individual state where such citizen resides and is also a citizen of. There is no mention of states in the explanation of who is a citizen at 26 CFR. 1.1-1c, and its pronoun its in reference to the United States makes it clear that the federal government is being referred to, not the states collectively, as in the 14th Amendment. So, the words and subject to are another clue. Context, again, is very important in the context of the income tax. To be subject to its jurisdiction amounts to being a person liable under IRC 6001. It means you are required to include all income in your gross income Regardless of source, there can be no doubt that this subject status must be voluntarily chosen by the individual, because if not, it would be slavery, would it not? Contrast with subject to the jurisdiction of the United States in the 14th Amendment. Does that result in any tax obligation according to the 14th? No, it confers rights, a right to citizenship of any state where one resides, for one. Important context for 14th is that it was intended to confer a right to state citizenship on freed Negro slaves who might otherwise be denied such rights by a Union State. For everyone else, it is mere clarification. Those born in the USA, as Americans, do not need the Constitution to give them citizenship. It is theirs by the doctrine of just soli. Congress already had rules for naturalization in place before the 14th Amendment, so that the naturalized citizens would have the same right to their nationality as those born in the USA as Americans, provided they meet the conditions set by Congress for acquiring that nationality. Therefore, citizen in constitutional terms really means the same as national. Congress has confused this by designating some peoples as non-citizen nationals, conferring nationality, but not the full rights of citizenship, mainly voting rights. But 8USC makes it clear that naturalization means the conferring of nationality. This is why I prefer to use the term American national. I avoid citizen because it can be confusing. This is worth spending a lot of time on and understanding it. Because once someone gets this, they will have an easier time understanding how they can be, in their own country, a non-resident alien to the IRC. Because non-resident alien is only an income tax term which is not used in immigration law or in any other federal law. It means one who is not subject to United States jurisdiction for income tax purposes. Remember that if subject means I have to report all my income as gross income to IRS, this has to be a status which I somehow chose, or it would be slavery. A resident alien is also subject in that sense. Again, Citizen is equated with resident alien for purposes of imposing the tax. So a non-resident alien only means one who has not chosen this subject status. Question 24. Can a national of the United States be an IRC non-resident alien for purposes of section 873? Answer 24. Who is a national of the United States? They do not define the term in the IRC. The term is described at AUSC, but this is not necessarily the same meaning as in IRC. The common sense meaning, then, is that it means anyone with U.S. nationality. The citizen described in the 14th Amendment national clearly refers to nationality. We are left with calling ourselves nationals for tax purposes, because citizen of the United States for tax purposes is has already been defined to meaning something different from citizen of the United States in the 14th Amendment. There is no basis for anyone to claim that an American cannot claim non-resident alien status, given that it only means one who has chosen not to have subject status for income tax purposes, which equals subjecting all income to reporting. The status of a U.S. person, which includes citizens and resident aliens, is itself the nexus of taxation, per 26 CFR 1.1. Dash one. By contrast, for a non-resident alien, the nexus attaches to certain income, not to the person. So it really is U.S. person and non-resident alien. Those are the choices for tax purposes. I'm really just trying to show what United States generally means in IRC. They do not define the term, except geographically. And this is most often not the sense in which the term is used in the IRC. So by going through what citizen or resident of the United States means, we can see how limited the definition of United States has to be. I'm trying to make it simple. You have to start with looking at the provisions imposing the tax and understanding what is written there. To understand it, you have to understand what United States means. Check this out. IRC 2203. A decedent who is a citizen of the United States and a resident of a possession thereof at the time of his death shall, for the purposes of the tax imposed by this chapter, be considered a citizen of the United States within the meaning of that term, wherever it is used in this title, unless he acquired his United States citizen solely by reason of 1. His being a citizen of such possessions of the United States, or 2. His birth or residence within such possessions of the United States. So who was a citizen of the United States shall be considered a citizen of the United States. It is almost like they're admitting that citizen for tax purposes is just some crap they made up. Considering a citizen of the United States within the meaning of that term, wherever it is used in this title. Keep in mind that 26 CFR 1.1-1A says, 1. Section 1 of the code imposes an income tax on the income of every individual who is a citizen or resident of the United States. But the 2203 decedent was a citizen of the U.S. who is now a citizen, not a citizen of the United States? Compare with 1.1-1C. Who is a citizen? Every person born or naturalized in the United States and is subject to its jurisdiction is a citizen. So now we see what they're doing when they pair citizen with resident of the United States together. It is not citizen of the United States and resident of the United States. Note that where they actually impose the tax, they say only citizen. Everywhere else they throw around the citizen of the United States, but not where it matters most. The provision imposing the tax. The tax is imposed on the income of every individual who is a citizen and also on every individual who is a resident of the United States. See what they did there? They avoid actual fraud by not imposing the tax on a citizen of the United States. I think it goes back to at least 1919 when they started asking that question on the 1040. Are you a citizen or resident of the United States? Diabolical. They got George Cook to say he was a citizen on his return. Citizen of what? Doesn't matter. Section 1 imposes a tax on every individual who is a citizen. 26 CFR 301.6109G. Special rules for taxpayer identifying numbers issued to foreign persons. 1. General Rule 1. Social Security Number A social security number is generally identified in the records and database of the Internal Revenue Service as a number belonging to a U.S. citizen or resident alien individual. A person may establish a different status for the number by providing proof of foreign status with the Internal Revenue Service under such procedures as the Internal Revenue Service shall prescribe, including the use of a form as the Internal Revenue Service may specify. Upon accepting an individual as a non-resident alien individual, the Internal Revenue Service will assign this status to the individual's social security number. U.S. citizen or resident alien individual. They do not use the term citizen of the United States there. U.S. citizen is not a term in federal law that I know of. Do you? So it is really citizen for purposes of the income tax. And the SSN is issued to a citizen. I am pointing out that they do not use the term citizen of the United States, but a made-up term U.S. citizen, which seems to be the same thing as citizen at Section 1, and the subject the tax is imposed upon. Question 25. Are you making a distinction between instances of citizen or resident of the United States or U.S. citizen at 26 U.S.C. Section 1? Answer 25. Section 1 does not use either of those terms. 26 CFR 1.1-1a says 1. Section 1 of the Code imposes an income tax on the income of every individual who is a citizen or resident of the United States. Section 1 refers only to taxable income and individuals who are either married or single or head of household. 26 CFR 301.6109g. Special Rules for Taxpayer Identifying Numbers Issued to Foreign Persons 1. General Rule 1. Social Security Number A social security number is generally identified in the records and database of the Internal Revenue Service as a number belonging to a U.S. citizen or resident alien individual. A person may establish a different status for the number by providing proof of foreign status with the Internal Revenue Service, under such procedures as the Internal Revenue Service shall prescribe, including the use of a form as the Internal Revenue Service may specify, upon accepting an individual as a non-resident alien individual, the Internal Revenue Service will assign this status to the individual's social security number. See that? U.S. citizen or resident alien individual. Note they do not use the term citizen of the United States there. U.S. citizen is not a term in federal law that I know of. So it is really citizen for purposes of income tax. The SSN belongs to a citizen, or they can in any case presume resident alien individual from an SSN. Interesting that a resident alien individual must provide proof of foreign status to change the status of his SSN. This shows that foreign is not referring to nationality. It is referring to being legally or jurisdictionally foreign. Note that foreign status is equated with non-resident alien, but not with resident alien. So non-resident alien means only legally, jurisdictionally foreign to U.S. Congress. It has nothing to do with nationality. This proves it. So Section 1 does not purport to impose tax on citizens of the United States, just residents of the United States. And this mysterious thing called a citizen. So... To conclude, you could say this is all ambiguous, and it is. But that is why it is important to know that rule about the tax not applying to you unless the law clearly spells it out. It is not clear that the tax is imposed on citizens of the United States, even if you assume that term means any American citizen. And there is no good basis for construing the term that way for tax purposes anyway. These are very good things for people to understand FICA is also an important tax imposed on wages with respect to employment as defined in IRC 3121 employment is defined here b employment for purposes of this chapter the term employment means any service of whatever nature performed a by an employee for the person employing him irrespective of the citizenship or residence of either one within the united states Within the United States, there is that term again. This is the legal predicate for an employer demanding a SSN. The assumption is that you are going to perform services within the United States. This is also the legal predicate for withholding FICA. Of course, if you later file a 1040, you make this all good after the fact. You have chosen the U.S. person status, which means that your services were performed in the United States. So the employer was not wrong to demand a SSN or to withhold FICA or to demand a W-4 be submitted. This is also presumed true even without a 1040, so long as you have not changed the status of your SSN to foreign person per 26 CFR 301.6109G. By filing as a NRA you leave yourself the legal option of refuting the representation that you perform services within the U.S. This also applies to any other information return based on payment of income from a source within U.S. Part 2. Definition. Question 26. You said in Part 1 that by understanding the definitions of just a few key terms, people could unravel the whole scam swindle pretty quickly. Which terms are you referring to specifically? Answer 26. 1. Well, people worry about a lot of terms they don't need to worry about. To me, the big ones to know are United States, trade or business, and gross income. The other terms are less important or not important at all. 2. United States is the really big one because the meaning of the term United States is crucial for the other two terms. 3. Trade or business is defined at 7701. 26. Trade or business. The term trade or business includes the performance of the functions of a public office, but when defining gross income for a non-resident alien, it is income that is effectively connected with the conduct of a trade or business within the United States. While on the form instructions made for U.S. persons, they never say trade or business within the United States. They only say just trade or business. Why? That's because everything a U.S. person does is within the United States legally. This gives you a clue as to what United States generally means in the IRC. It is not used in the geographical sense in most instances in the IRC. 4. Now, gross income is defined only for U.S. persons at IRC Section 61. They don't tell you that. They just say, except as otherwise provided, in this subtitle. Gross income means all income from whatever source derived. But when we look at IRC section 872 and the definition of gross income for a non-resident alien, we find this. General rule in the case of a non-resident alien individual, except where the context clearly indicates otherwise. A. Gross income includes only 1. Gross income which is derived from sources within the United States and which is not effectively connected with the conduct of a trade or business within the United States. And, 2. Gross income which is effectively connected with the conduct of a trade or business within the United States. 5. To know what gross income is for the NRA, you have to know what trade or business within the United States means and you have to know what United States means to know whether you are a non-resident alien, since that is defined like this. b. Non-resident alien. An individual is a non-resident alien if such individual is neither a citizen of the United States nor a resident of the United States, within the meaning of subparagraph a. 6. So it all comes down to what United States means, and they don't want you to figure it out. This is why they don't define the term except in its geographical sense. That is a red herring for the most part. 7. United States in federal law generally means the federal government itself, except where the term is specifically defined otherwise. 8. United States is a body formed by the Union States. That is what United States means in the preamble to the 1787 Constitution. It is short for the United States of America in Congress assembled, i.e. federal government, which is still the first phrase used in every act of Congress. 9. This goes back to the Articles of Confederation. I explain this in that bonus report I offer for people who want to understand why Congress has to be so sneaky in the way they wrote the income tax laws. Additional info.